Mark chapter 8, we're just going to dive right in. Verse 1, in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, well, they'll faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him and said, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now, as we do in our travels through Mark, we're going to start with the scene of activity. Jesus, we're told, in those days indicating that we're still in a period of ministry where Jesus is focusing his attention onto the Gentiles. Most of Jesus' ministry focused on the Jews. Jesus was a Jew, born in Jewish territory, of a Jewish city, of Jewish parents, of a Jewish religion, a Jewish culture. Jesus came first for the Jews. Undeniable, it's scriptural. But we see a season of ministry, illustrated here by Mark, of a time with the Gentiles. It was timely. Because Jesus, at this point in ministry, his third season of opposition, the cross coming into focus, it's on the horizon. Jesus is constantly at odds with the Pharisees, with the scribes, with the religious leaders. He gets away. He heads to the regions of the Gentiles, beginning with Tyre and Sidon. He comes down to the region of the Decapolis, which was ten cities there on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's continuing that ministry. And Mark says, in those days, during this time of ministry, that Jesus is, is, it's a sweet season. I mean, it really is, because what we find here, is that Jesus spends three days out there on the hillside teaching the people, Gentiles, preaching the good news of the gospel, illustrating the the keys of the kingdom. A lot of the same lessons that Jesus has communicated to the Jews, he's communicating to the Gentiles for three days. Everyone's content. Everyone's at peace. And it really is amazing. Three continual days of the people gathering and Jesus ministering to them. Now we're told in verse 9 that the number of Gentiles here are 4,000. And at the conclusion of these three days, Jesus calls the disciples to himself. And we're told that he shares with the disciples a genuine concern. The concern is that because they had continued for three days, the people there, that Jesus was moved with compassion concerning those that he had spent this time with. Jesus is concerned that if he sends them away because they've run out of food to eat, that they've run out of provisions, that they wouldn't make it home. Jesus has a concern for their well-being. Now the phrase that they have nothing to eat doesn't indicate, as some have speculated, that that they haven't eaten for three days. Like that everyone came out totally unprepared. They spent three days. They they didn't even worry about the the hunger, right? I mean, if we keep you beyond 12, like your tummies start rumbling and you're like, it's lunchtime, Zach, shut up. It's time for us to go. Like the idea is not that like they just threw caution to the wind. They didn't care that they had not eaten breakfast, lunch, or dinner or breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's not that idea. It's that they had been there, that they had brought provisions, that they had eaten their food, but that no one had really anticipated this being three days. And so people had run out. And because some had come from afar, Jesus is concerned that they might not get there. So he rallies the disciples. He shares this concern. And then we get the the response of the disciples. And the response is interesting. They said, how? Or literally, from where can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now, their response, in a lot of ways, is a head-scratcher. It's kind of bizarre. Because if you've been with us for not too long, you'll recall back in chapter 6, a similar scene, right? A similar setting where you had 5,000 that were also hungry and need of something to eat? And was there any deterrent to Jesus being able to address the need, the concern? No, not at all. 
And so their response here has kind of raised the eyebrows of theologians throughout the centuries. Why would they respond in such a way, especially with the feeding of the 5,000, so recent in, in, in their mind, in their consciousness, in their perspective? Now, there are two basic ideas or theories why the disciples would respond this way. Some have speculated that they were just that forgetful, that they were that stupid, that they were that ignorant, that they were that dull and dense, that they're looking around and Jesus is like, hey, these people are hungry. And they're like, oh, jeepers, Jesus, not sure what we should do here. Don't know if there's any solutions. Like they had completely forgotten that Jesus had already fed 5,000. Like, are they that dense, that dull, that stupid, that forgetful? Now, before we cast judgment, before we cast judgment on these disciples, aren't we also guilty of being forgetful of the Lord's provision? You know, it's amazing that, that, that we often find ourselves in a similar situation as the disciples, where God has worked in a miraculous way, in a radical way, in a real way, that the Lord met us in, in, in the moment of need, in the moment of desperation, that God worked in our lives in a supernatural way, and then some time transpires, another situation arises, and we throw up our hands and start freaking out, like, God, can you deal with this? Are you sure? Please understand, Christian, that Jesus' past faithfulness it's always a promise for future provision. You see, the disciples, in the moment, they should have hearkened back. Wait a second. We've been through this before. And you know what? There was an even greater need that the Lord proved able to handle. And so I'm looking at this, and because of past faithfulness, I now look at a new struggle, and I have greater faith. So often, it's sad, isn't it? that we're guilty of the same kind of forgetfulness. When the Lord gives you a victory and the Lord helps you through a trial and through a struggle, mark that. And in the Old Testament, they would, they would pile stones together, an Ebenezer before the Lord, something that they could look back to and remember, wait a second, I'm facing this present struggle in context of these past victories. So wait a second, the Lord, the Lord can... The Lord can handle this. One of the, the habits that, that I'm into, I would exhort you to as well, is that sometimes through Scripture, the Lord uses passages. He ministers to our hearts. He helps us through moments. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a moment and a verse jumped off the page and really helped you through that crisis. You know, I often mark those passages in my Bible, and I kind of set up for myself little Ebenezer's. So as I'm flipping through my Bible, as I'm reading, I'll see little notations, you know, promise with a date, fulfillment with a date. And I see these things, and it's a reminder that, wait a second, the Lord is strong and able and willing to be as faithful to help me through this trial as he was through the last. So why am I freaking out about it? So the first theory is that they were just forgetful. The other theory which, by the way, I, I would kind of lean towards, is that the disciples were just prejudicial. Now, in context, Jesus has gone to Gentile areas, Gentile turf, with the intention of contrasting himself with the religious leaders he's been constantly battling, right? And to kind of change the mindset of the disciples and how they view the Gentiles. These guys are going to end up carrying the mantle forward after Jesus ascends to heaven. He's trying to go ahead and change the way that they view the Gentiles, of which they would be used to reach later on. And I'm of the opinion that the feeding of the 4,000, that this moment, this situation, is just a continuation of trying to tear down walls that existed within the minds of the disciples. Because what? The crowd here are Gentiles. Three days of ministry to 4,000 Gentiles. And note their response with that in mind. Jesus brings this need to their attention. They respond from where? 
or how can one satisfy these people with bread? These people. You kind of sense a little snootiness, don't you? I mean, when you read through it with the context established, you kind of gain a, a bit of a, of a perspective that the disciples viewed themselves in a hierarchical perspective or position above everyone else. Like, there are them, and then there are us. There are those people, and then there are us. We're the disciples, and they're the Gentiles. We're the Jews, and they're the Gentiles. You get this division within the vernacular here. So these people shows a hierarchical distinction from the disciples' perspective. But also, there's another word that's an indicator here. This word, satisfy. From where can one satisfy these people with bread? Because this word reveals to us the true heart behind their response. The word satisfied, it wasn't used by accident, in my opinion, by the disciples. Because once again, in context to the flow of the story of the narration of what we've been looking at for the last two chapters, this word pops up often. In conclusion to the feeding of the 5,000, a Jewish audience, we're told that they ate, and according to chapter 6, verse 42, they were satisfied. Same Greek word. And then in Mark chapter 7, verse 27, when Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon, and there's this Gentile woman, if you'll recall, with the demon-possessed daughter. She comes and she has this exchange with Jesus, and Jesus illustrates the Jewish mindset concerning the Gentiles in verse 27 of chapter 7 when he says, to her, let the children be filled first. That word filled is the same Greek word as satisfied. Let the children, speaking of the Jews, be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. The disciples, by using this word, from where can one satisfy these people? Like, Jesus, really? The Jews? Okay, the Jews can be satisfied with the bread that you give. But these people, these Gentiles, like really, I don't think that they can be satisfied at all. That's the essence of what they're saying. They're saying, you offer a bread. Okay, we get that, Jesus. You've, you've, you've taught us this. You've illustrated it. You took care of the 5,000. They ate. They were satisfied. You even made the point that the bread was given to the children first, that they could be filled and satisfied. I mean, really, can the Gentiles even find satisfaction? And with that in mind, the entire miracle begins to take a different tone. Because Jesus asks them in verse 5, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And so he commanded the multitude to sit on the ground. And he took these seven loaves, and he gave thanks, and he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. Well, they also had a few fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them before them also. And so they ate, were filled, or satisfied, same word, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. It's sad. I think this miracle is an incredible miracle. I think in some ways it's a radical miracle, a powerful miracle. But the truth is that the feeding of the 4,000 is one of the most neglected miracles in the ministry of Jesus. First, liberal theologians, they actually claim that this miracle is the same miracle as the feeding of the 5,000. You will find some commentators that will just say that Mark is reiterating oral tradition, that this is not a separate miracle, but just kind of the same miracle repeated by Mark, just to kind of show maybe some of the contrast between the pervasive opinions. Some said it was 5,000. Well, some said it was 4,000. So Mark kind of brings this story to just compare and contrast so you know what everyone kind of thought. There are liberal theologians that will claim that the feeding of the 4,000 is nothing more than the same miracle. Mainline theologians, or the predominant evangelical theologian, will say that this miracle, they view this miracle as a duplicate miracle. Now what that means is that 
you're reading through the Gospels, and you see that Jesus will heal a blind man. And then later on, Jesus will heal a blind man, and then he'll heal another blind man, or a lame man. He does that again. That we see certain miracles that uh, the first time we view them, well, that's significant. And so if we're teaching expositionally, the next time we get to Jesus healing uh, healing a blind man, we're not going to spend as much time because we've already addressed that. And so it's similar in the sense that it's a feeding miracle, but it's just a duplication. And so you'll the majority of people you listen to teach through this passage spend just a few minutes on the miracle and they pass right by it. I'm of the opinion, though, that we should view this miracle not as the same miracle or a duplicate miracle, but rather as a parallel miracle, a parallel miracle. You see, in my mind, when you begin to really unpack what's happening here in context to the narrative, the feeding of the 5,000 to truly understand that miracle, you must understand it in contrast to the feeding of the 4,000. And in order to understand the feeding of the 4,000, you have to place it in contrast to the feeding of the 5,000. That in a lot of ways, these two feeding miracles run parallel with one another. They need each other in order for you to truly understand what Jesus is trying to do through them. They're parallel miracles. It's kind of like it's impossible to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich without the jelly. And so if you're just looking at the feeding of the 5,000, well, you got a peanut butter sandwich, but you need the jelly, which is the feeding of the 4,000, that the two go together in harmony. Now, with this perspective in mind, both miracles in, con in context together, the feeding of the 4,000 becomes significant for five big reasons. First, through this miracle, Jesus is establishing the proper division of humanity. In Mark chapter 6, or the feeding of the 5,000, our scene of activity was simple. It was a Jewish audience that was hungry, and they needed bread, but it was Jews. And then in Mark 8, the feeding of the 4,000, we've seen the same problem, hungry people needing food, but it's not the Jews. We see that it's now the Gentiles. You see, we should note that when you put these together, you reach a conclusion that both Jews and Gentiles are what? Are hungry and are need of bread. But note that in both stories, the one person there that day that didn't eat because he wasn't hungry was Jesus. If you go back to the feeding of the 5,000, everyone ate. All of the Jews ate. The 5,000 men and then their, their wives and then the children and then the disciples, they all ate and were satisfied. But we have no mention of Jesus eating because Jesus didn't need to be satisfied. And then here in this miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, the Gentiles eat, the disciples eat. But who doesn't eat? Jesus. You see, he's establishing the proper division of humanity. The Jews divided humanity between themselves, the Jews, and the Gentiles, right? And then there were other divisions, such as the slaves and the free, or the Romans and the Greeks. Humanity likes dividing itself. Dogs and jackets. Braves fans and losers. Coke and Pepsi, Mac, PC. I mean, we divide ourselves over just about anything and everything. We like to divide. We divide between Christian and non-Christian. In the church, we talk about those that are saved and those that are lost, those that are redeemed and those that are condemned. But understand, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is basically saying, he's illustrating He's establishing that there are those that are hungry, and then there's me. You see, if you really want to divide humanity out appropriately, it's Jesus and everybody else. It's not Jew and Gentile, and it's not Christian and non-Christian. It's Jesus, the perfect, spotless Son of God, 
and everybody else. You see, that's the appropriate division of humanity, and we find Jesus establishing this. Jew and Gentile, now you're all hungry. And then there's me. But secondly, Jesus is illustrating humanity's inability to find satisfaction apart from him or his involvement. Both situations begin with the same problem. The people were hungry, and since they were in the wilderness, they had no way to satisfy the desire of hunger, right? There was no way that the Jews could satisfy it or the Gentiles, they were in the wilderness, they would have had to leave, go somewhere else. Both situations begin with the same problem. The Jews were hungry, the religious Jews were hungry, and the pagan Gentiles were hungry. And they had no way of finding satisfaction. But who provided satisfaction? Well, Jesus did. The desire to be satisfied. And if you haven't picked up that we're speaking of something deeper than just hunger. But we're speaking of a satisfaction of the soul. The satisfaction of the spirit. A deeper satisfaction. That we try all kinds of temporal things We try to plug these things into our lives. We want to be satisfied. People want satisfaction. But we find that after trying out this or trying out that, that after so many of our varying pursuits, that we're left still empty and still longing. The book of Ecclesiastes is a great illustration of pursuing things to satisfy apart from God in the world but being left still empty. Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones, he echoed the world's frustration and probably one of the most popular songs ever written. I can't get no satisfaction. It's true. I can't get satisfaction. You see, the religious Jews, the holy rollers, the religious right, The good people, they were hungry with no way to satisfy themselves. But the pagan Gentiles, the lost, the outsiders, they they were also hungry. Jesus is illustrating humanity's inability to find satisfaction in anything apart from himself. But thirdly, Jesus is demonstrating a willingness to do what? To satisfy the hunger of all men. And though Jesus came to the Jew first, feeding of the 5,000, he also came to the Gentiles. And in both accounts, Jesus was moved, wasn't he? Jesus looked out on the multitude and he had compassion. And what, in both accounts are we told? That Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he did what? He fed the people. In John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus says of himself, I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. And then he says this, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. If anyone, the Jews just thought it was for themselves, the disciples Can these people really be satisfied? And Jesus is saying what? Well, he feeds them and we're told that they were satisfied. If anyone, if anyone would come, that Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. And so he's demonstrating here a willingness to satisfy the hunger of anyone that would come. Fourthly, Jesus is forcing the disciples to overcome their prejudice. And we see their prejudice, really. In Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples, if you note, the disciples bring the need of the multitude. They bring the need to Jesus' attention, don't they? We're told that they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, listen, you should send everyone away because they're hungry and they need to go out and buy bread. They bring the need to Jesus' attention. It's as though the disciples look out to their brethren, the Jews, and they're like, hey, all right, we will intercede on your behalf. We'll go to Jesus. And so they kind of carry the mantle. But in this situation, 
The disciples look at, it's been three days, there's a hungry multitude. Do they care? No. As a matter of fact, it's Jesus that comes to the disciples in contrast, right? And he says, let me fill you in on a need here. He makes them aware that there's a hungry multitude that needs to be fed. And Jesus uses the disciples to do something interesting. In the first account, when Jesus says, well, hey, you know, what do we have? What resources are available? We're told the disciples go into the multitude, don't they? And they find a little boy with five loaves and two fish. So they steal this kid's lunch and they bring it to Jesus. But in this story, Jesus makes it clear. Like, I'm not asking what they have. What do you have? You see, Jesus, when it comes to feeding the Jews, it was, and in some ways, an imperson- he used them, but it was impersonal. In this situation with the Gentiles, Jesus intimately involves them. He says, what do you have? What are your resources? And so they come and they're like, we have seven loaves. And Jesus uses their bread and he blesses their bread. Jesus steals their lunch to feed the Gentiles. And you think that's on accident? Especially from their attitude? There's a fifth reason that the feeding of the 4,000 is important, a fifth and final. And that is, I believe, that Jesus is prophetically highlighting the greater work that he would do among the Gentiles in contrast to the work that he would do among the Jews. That I think in some ways you can view this miracle as prophetic. In Mark chapter 6, if you recall, following the miracle, the disciples go out and they collect, we're told, 12 baskets of leftovers. The word basket here is a Greek word that means a small wicker basket. It was not a very large basket. It was a smaller basket. And it's interesting in regards to biblical numerology that we find that 12 is often symbolic. It's indicative. It's a type, a picture of the Jews because the Jews as a people, as God's people, as the nation were divided amongst 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so always when we find references to 12, there's an interesting parallel to the Jews. So 12 small baskets of leftovers of a miracle done with the Jews. Jesus is saying that he would, yes, work amongst the nation, but because of their response, because of their reaction, the increase would be small. And that's true. Looking back historically, it was a small increase, an increase, but small. But in Mark chapter 7, we see here that following the miracle, after the collection, we find what? Seven baskets of leftovers. Now the word basket, it's different than what we find in Mark chapter 6 because it's the Greek word that means a large hamper basket. The only other time that we find this word used is actually in Acts chapter 9. When the apostle Paul is in Damascus and he generates a few enemies, he has to escape under the cover of darkness. And we're told that the Christians, they lowered him down the wall using a large basket. So this was a basket large enough for a man to be lowered down the side of a wall. This is the word being used here. In the first miracle, they collect 12 small baskets of leftovers. But in this situation, the disciples go and they fill up seven huge hampers, big old baskets. Now, where in the world they found big old baskets out there in the wilderness? Like, who's carrying around their laundry with them? I have no idea. But it's interesting, because in biblical numerology, the number seven always means completion, in the sense that we have seven days that make up a full week, seven being completion. Now, it's Gentiles, And Jesus is contrasting the work that he would do amongst the Gentiles or everyone that's not a Jew with the work he would do amongst the Jews. There would be 12 small baskets, but in the work that he would do amongst the Gentiles, you would find seven huge baskets, seven being completion. It's also interesting to note that Jesus wrote in the book of Revelation some letters to the Gentile churches, didn't he? You know how many letters he wrote? He wrote seven. 
seven letters to the churches. And if you're a student of the book of Revelation, that section of scripture can be viewed as Jesus writing to the church universally as a whole, not just to these specific seven. It's interesting also to note that the Apostle Paul, he wrote letters to churches that were Gentile. Do you know how many he wrote? He wrote to seven groupings of churches, to Philippi, to Ephesus, to Rome, to Corinth. Now, he wrote two letters to Corinth. He wrote to the churches in the region of Galatia, Colossae, and what? Thessalonica. So we see Paul writing to seven. So I see these seven huge baskets as prophetic of that Jesus' ministry, the bread of life being distributed amongst the Gentile world. It would be a complete working. We should also just throw out on a side note that the number four can also be viewed and considered as the number of the earth. Some have said that 4,000 represents here the totality of humanity. You had 5,000, but this is different. It's four, and that this is a picture of the working that God would do amongst the earth. Well, we're told that now those who had eaten There were about 4,000, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he came to the region of Dalmutha. And the Pharisees, they came out, and they began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, that no sign shall be given to this generation, and he left them. Now, Jesus has finally made his way back to a predominantly Jewish region. So he's concluded his ministry amongst the Gentiles, concluding it with the feeding of the 4,000. He comes back to Jewish territory, and immediately, as soon as word got out that Jesus was back, that he had returned from Gentile turf, that the Pharisees come out, that he's met by a group of religious leaders. And they come with one aim. We're told that they came out, they began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Now, in order to understand what's really happening here, this exchange, you kind of have to reshuffle the English sentence to kind of get to what the Greek is indicating. We're told that they disputed with Jesus, asking... So the nature of the dispute is that they are seeking from him a sign from heaven because the ultimate end, the end game, what they're wanting to accomplish is that they were testing him. Now, the Greek word for testing is parazo, meaning to solicit to sin. So what they're doing Their purpose, their motivation, the Pharisees, their game, their goal is that they're trying to get Jesus to sin. They're trying to trick him, to trap him. They are testing him. They want Jesus to fall into a trap, to slip up, to sin. Now, they would want this for three reasons. First, obviously, they want to undermine his ministry. They want to demonstrate to the the other Jews, the other audience, that Jesus wasn't exactly who he said he was. If he could take the bait, say something stupid, that just maybe, just maybe, that this would demonstrate to the people that Jesus was an imposter, a fake. But also, you can't help but note that they wanted a reason to arrest him. Now, we should mention that the only other time that we find this word tested, mentioned, this Greek word. What the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. There's only one other occasion that this word is used. And we find it back in Mark chapter 1, verse 13. I'll read it for you because we're told, and Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted or perizo by who? Satan. The only other time that we find the Pharisees' behavior being emulated was by Satan. It's powerful. It's indicting. It's condemning. The motivation behind what the Pharisees are doing by these disputes, it was satanic in nature. 
And it's ironic, isn't it? That they would come to Jesus seeking from him a sign from heaven. It's not as though that Jesus at this point in ministry didn't have kind of like a, a pretty lengthy resume. I mean, first, let's mention that if you were a student of Old Testament scripture, messianic scripture of the coming Christ, as these Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders were, that they should have known by all of the things that Jesus is doing, that Jesus is who he said he was. That, I mean, the, the statistical probability of just Jesus accidentally fulfilling eight messianic prophecies concerning his birth is so large that it's, 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 it couldn't have happened by accident. That as a student of the Old Testament, any doubt should have been removed, that they should not have come seeking a sign but have come to worship. But they had rejected those things, and they had skipped over what they had seen. We're told that the Pharisees were present there in the house in Capernaum when a man is lowered down before Jesus, who's paralyzed. And Jesus forgives the man of his sins and then says, arise and walk. And boom, the guy gets up and walks. And then Jesus is healing lepers. I mean, Jesus is doing, his resume is pretty lengthy. The fact that they would come at this point and be like, hey, Jesus, we just want to see you do some kind of a sign so that we can believe in you. They didn't want to see a sign. They wanted to test Jesus. They wanted to solicit him to sin, seeking a sign. Now, some have speculated, and as a student of Scripture, I'll just throw this out, something you can chew on, but that may be this mention of a sign from heaven indicated that they wanted Jesus to do something in the sky. Something like Elijah. Because if you do look at the ministry of Jesus, all of Jesus' miracles at this point have taken place on good old planet Earth. From walking on water to calling the storm to cease. Maybe at this point they're just saying, you know, the one thing Jesus hasn't done, the one thing maybe we can get him about, is he's never brought down fire from heaven. Now, if I was Jesus, I mean, I mean, I think I would have like written their names out in the in the cloud, right? And then like lightning bolt through that, and like boom, there you go. There you want a sign. Or like asteroids like falling down as they're running away, just hitting them one after another. As they're, I mean, I would have, but Jesus doesn't take the bait. His reaction, it's interesting. He's he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, Why? Why? You know. To do something to get God to kind of scratch his head and say, why? I mean, you have to be doing something pretty crazy for God to look at you and be like, I'm God with infinite knowledge of infinite things, and I'm just kind of scratching my head because this is dumbfounding. These guys, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you that no sign shall be given. And then he leaves. First, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit, and then he refused to play their game. No sign shall be given, and then he departs. You know, I think the Pharisees, the Pharisees get all the junk we heap on them. I mean, I mean, they deserve it. I mean, we blast the Pharisees. But you know, this is an important contrast, I think, because as lost and hard-headed and stubborn as these men were and as legalistic as they were. You know, Jesus' reaction here tells me how much he loved them. You know this phrase that he deeply sighed? It is the only time we're, we're given this reaction of Jesus. And, and in the Greek, it's, it's the idea that this was a sigh from deep within his soul. That he sighed deeply. At what? At their unbelief. And why? Why? Jesus, he never performed miracles with the intention of swaying an unbelieving heart. And this exchange, it revealed their deep unbelief. You know the one thing Jesus can't do? The one, the one thing that he can't work with is an unbelieving heart. Unbelief is the one line in the sand that Jesus won't cross. 
And these Pharisees are demonstrating their unbelief. They're wanting to see a sign, but signs would never sway an unbelieving heart. And he loved them and he cared for them, but he felt hopeless. I think the sigh was like, I want to do so much in your lives, but I can't because of your unbelief. Could it be that that maybe Jesus this morning might share and might have that same reaction to you, that he's speaking to to your heart, he's speaking through the void into your life, and you're standing there stubborn and prideful and resistant, and Jesus is sighing because he loves you and he cares for you, but the hardness of your heart is the one thing he can't work with. Now, there are other problems with seeking signs, and we're going to leave that to one of our B-sides, but diving right back in. So he leaves them, he gets into the boat. He departs to the other side. The disciples, were told, had forgotten to take bread. And they did not have more than one loaf with them. And so we're told that Jesus charged them. He rebukes them. He encourages them. He says, take heed. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The disciples... They jump back into the boat. They're making their way across the Sea of Galilee. And then it dawns on them. Holy cow, we forgot to pack lunch. They're looking around. They're hungry. There's no fast food on the Sea of Galilee. They're like, we only have one loaf of bread. And there's 12 of us with Jesus. Not sure what we can do with that. And Jesus uses this opportunity the fact that it kind of dawns on them that they're hungry, they don't have bread, to issue a warning. He charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The command here, to take heed, can literally be translated into the vernacular in the verb tense as constantly be taking heed. This is not like a a warning to for like a one-time observance. or like, hey, take heed of this right now. But like, you should always be taking heed. Constantly be taking heed of what? Of the leaven. And in Scripture, leaven was viewed as a corrupting, a corroding agent. Leaven was always viewed as a picture of sin. And so Jesus is saying, you guys should always be constantly taking heed amongst yourselves of sin, of leaven. But then he gets more specific. Two kinds of leaven illustrated by two groupings of people. This is what's happening. He says, take heed of leaven, of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The leaven of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as we mentioned before, were guilty of legalism. And it was legalism in the sense that it wasn't that they weren't concerned with the things of God It wasn't legalism in the sense that they didn't want to obey the things of God, but it was legalism in the sense that they didn't allow the word of God to speak for itself. It wasn't as though that they just opened up God's word, took it for what it said, and then just like, we really want to obey this. It was that they added to the word of God, they heaped on top of the word of God additional things that they were to obey. The Pharisees, in its most simplistic definition, were guilty of adding to the word of God things that weren't in the word of God. You know, God has no problem saying what he wants to say. And so often, we get into danger when we try to define the application of the things of God in ways that maybe God just never intended it to be applied. The Pharisees were guilty of saying, okay, well, God might say that we should behave this way, but you know, we should be careful. And so to be careful that we don't disobey God in these ways, well, we're just going to kind of add a few more things to it, just to be on the safe side. They added to the things of God. And so what is Jesus telling the disciples? Be constantly taking heed that you do not fall into the sin of the Pharisees, that you don't fall into the sin of legalism. Now, why would Jesus say to constantly be be aware of that? 
<laughs> because legalism is very easy for us to fall into. It's easy. You know, you come to Jesus and you're excited about what Jesus is doing in your heart, in your life. You're taking God's word. But then like slowly but surely, we're looking at other people and we're no longer looking at them with love, but the law. It's an easy trap. You shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that when you're like, wait a second. What does God have to say about it? Not what man has, what does God have to say? Legalism. We like our rules. We like controlling and dictating and safeguarding against. But let God be the authority. And so, so Jesus is saying to the disciples, this is something that you have to be careful with. The sin of the Pharisees. But then he also says the leaven of Herod. The Pharisees were always adding to the word of God. But Herod and who we would scripturally known as the Herodians, they were guilty of abandoning the word of God. If the Pharisees were guilty of legalism, one end of the pendulum, the Herodians on the other end were guilty of compromise and worldliness and secularism. Jesus is warning us, the disciples, be careful of these two extremes. Because guess what? Both he considers to be sin. Adding to God's word is sin. Abandoning God's word is sin. And from Jesus' perspective, they're the same. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus, according to this passage, views legalism and worldliness. He throws them together. The irony. May we safeguard against both. Now, following Jesus' statement, Mark tells us that the disciples, we're told that they reasoned among themselves. Jesus makes this statement, and, and they're like, is, is this warning because we, we don't have any bread to eat? Jesus gives this warning, and it, and it flies over their head. It really does. They reasoned among themselves. They formed a committee, tried to figure out what Jesus is saying, they pulled together their collective ignorance. It must be that we forgot lunch. And to this, Jesus, being aware of it, he says to them, and he fires off nine quick questions. I mean, boom, one after another, and he's not giving the disciples even room to react or to respond. And they're kind of there like, oh my, this is an interesting reaction we get from Jesus. Because of the thickness of their head and their heart, they're not getting it. And so Jesus, boom, question number one, why do you reason? Because you have no bread. Number two, do you not perceive or understand? Number three, is your heart hardened? Number four, having eyes, do you not see? Number five, having ears, do you not hear? And they're like, they're looking around. Number six, do you not remember? Number seven, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And I kind of kind of see them like, uh, uh, 12, like, like they're just jumping in here. And then number eight, when I, the seven for 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they're like, seven. So Jesus says to them, how is it that you do not understand? And they're looking around. Shazam. <laughs> like Jesus just lowered the boom. And guess what? There's not a further dialogue here. It's like, you guys reason that one out. Jesus' frustration, why does it spill over in the way that it does? You know, mild, meek-mannered Jesus? Not so mild and meek here, is he? Timid Jesus? It's like I can see like spit particles like flying out of his mouth as he's just running through this. Just the, the frustration is boiling over. And Why? Because he spent two chapters contrasting himself, the bread of life, with the leaven of religion and the leaven of worldliness. The Jews 
These religious people were hungry and unsatisfied and lost. And these pagan worldly Gentiles were also hungry and lost. And neither group had any satisfaction. But Jesus, the bread of life, he satisfies. This is why he brings up the 12, the 12, and the, the, the 4,000, there were seven. Like, like, gee, come on, man, help me out. Do you not get it? What I'm trying to communicate. And the truth is that they didn't. Now we're going to see next week. Then he came to Bethsaida, and a miracle is about to happen that is directly connected to these disciples' hard-headedness, which I find very encouraging. Because even as dull as these guys were, Jesus is speaking to them, he's teaching them, he's giving them illustration after illustration, he's trying to communicate his heart for people to these guys he's going to hand over the church to, and they're just like, is it because we forgot our lunch? Like, they're just not getting it, and Jesus is just over and over and over again. And at this point, if I'm Jesus, and I'm there on the boat making my way over, at this point, I'm like, like, I'm jumping out of the boat. I'm swimming to shore. I'm done with you knuckleheads. Like, really? I've wasted two and a half chapters on you. But we find that is Jesus, though frustrated, Does Jesus give up? No. Jesus, we're going to find next week. He's like, all right, you're not getting it as quickly as I'm wanting you to get it. And though everybody else would give up on you guys, I'm going to try a different way, a different strategy. And so they get to Bethsaida, and we find an interesting miracle of Jesus healing a blind man in a way that he's never healed a blind man ever before. He performs a miracle in a way he's never performed a miracle before. And it's, it, it's directly connected to a continuation of his ministry to the disciples. The more I study Jesus, you know, our ministries to the world. Jesus has his hands full with his ministry with us. <laughs> it's as though Jesus is like, I'm going to send my disciples into the world. And you guys go reach the world because I just, I got to work with you. But Jesus loves ministering to his disciples. To you. Even when we're hard-headed and we're stubborn, Jesus doesn't give up. So take heart and come back because this next miracle, it brings a lot of clarity to what's going on with these disciples. And so, Father...